about death is uncomfortable. We think if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. Sadly, this isn't true. It's the only thing in life that we can be certain about. And because we don't talk about it, often we don't know what to do when we experience the death of a loved one. My name is Fiona Garvin and this is Deadly Serious Conversations. I'll be talking to a range of people who will share their knowledge and experience so we can learn how to make dying part of living. In this episode of the podcast, I chat with Melinda Wyman. In more recent years, Melinda has worked in the death industry as a funeral director, but prior to this, she was just someone in her community that people reached out to if someone was dying or had died. And she found herself in the death care space as a birth doula, supporting a family whose baby had died in utero. And in the years that followed, she became the person that her community would call upon when they didn't know what to do when facing death. Melinda and I met under the saddest of circumstances and we have full permission to talk about this. I was a celebrant for a family who were organising the funeral for their little boy Teddy who had died very suddenly and unexpectedly a week before his third birthday. When I arrived in Teddy's home, Melinda was there to support his family as a friend and community member. And I would like to honour Teddy and acknowledge all that his death and funeral taught me in who I am today as a celebrant. In this episode, Melinda and I use the word community a lot because that's a word that resonates for both of us. But there may be some people listening to this episode who don't identify with this particular word and don't see themselves or recognise themselves as part of a community. In the context of this episode, we refer to a community as anyone who is friends, family, associations or those we're connected to who has experienced a loss. In essence, when we refer to the word community, we're actually referring to everybody. Grief will touch us all, both personally and the people we're connected to, because we're all connected to someone who will experience grief at some stage in their life. And although Melinda may not have all the answers, she's never been afraid to show up. And through this conversation, I hope that we can all learn a little bit more how to show up for the bereaved in our own communities. So good morning, Melinda, and uh, welcome. So death is one of the last big taboos in our society, and grief is still very much misunderstood. It makes us all feel uncomfortable. But today in this episode, we want to discuss how to help pull down this hidden wall around bereavement and grief and how we can all learn to be a good support person to someone who is grieving. As we know, grief is a very lonely and isolating experience and navigating how to comfort a friend or family member during such a difficult time is overwhelming and can feel just a little bit daunting. But We hope that this conversation will help to avoid letting the fear of saying or doing the wrong thing hold you back from trying to help at all. So, Melinda, what are some of the things someone can say when learning that someone has died? Well, I think what I've learned is that the words you choose related to 
what relationship you have to the person that's died and the family or the people that you're sitting with or you're visiting. So I'm always really sensitive to wanting to stay authentic and wanting to allow the family to feel that I'm offering appropriate words that are heartfelt but also not taking or stepping into it in a way that's reflecting a grief that's not mine. So if I'm visiting a really close friend or family member or someone I know really well, I will absolutely say, I'm so very sorry that beautiful person that you've loved has died or my heart is so broken for yours. I'm so sad that this is happening because there's a genuine sense of shared grief. But if I'm visiting as a community member or visiting in a professional capacity, what I'll often say is, I'm so very sorry that we're here under these circumstances and I'm so sorry that you're grieving the loss of whoever it is that's died. So an acknowledgement, but not pretending that I understand their grief or that I share their grief in a way that's close. I think it's really important to be real. And I think, you know, using if the family are hearing the words, I'm sorry, over and over again, and it's coming across as disingenuine, like it's just meaningless words. But yeah, making sure that those words have meaning to them. I think so too. And remembering that not all deaths are sorry events. So often remembering that some, in many situations, someone's lived a beautiful, long life and the family are sad, but there's not so much a sorriness, but just a sadness that that beautiful life won't continue and the beautiful experience that they've shared together won't continue. It's very different when someone dies unexpectedly and there's shock and trauma. So being sensitive to what's occurred and the nature of the death that experience that the family are in. Sometimes you will enter a room or a, a home and there'll be incredible joy and lightness and laughter. And so I think not always assuming that it's a sorry event or that it's all about sadness, being sensitive and meeting the family where they are. Because for some families, death can come as a relief for them if it's tied up with all sorts of complicated health issues or for whatever reason so and it is possible for sadness and relief to exist in the same space and that's okay too i agree and making space for also the type of grieving that's connected to a relationship that's been very difficult and often those grieving people feel the most isolated because they there can be sadness for themselves and for the difficult things that have happened in their lives in relationship to the person. But there is a sense of relief that, that, that that's finished now, that that story's finished. And that can feel very complicated, but it's an important, it's important thing as a community to be able to allow the sense of, the sense of relief or release that a death can bring as well. So careful listening and asking the family how can I meet you best in this space? Or what is it that you're needing from us? I think is a more good way forward. So one of the things bereaved families have shared with me really often is how 
beautiful it is to receive flowers, but how overwhelming it is when everyone sends flowers. And some families will actually ask, please no flowers. But I think it's important to stop and consider whether flowers times 100 are going to be useful and whether or not the family that's an authentic gesture, if they're not people that are flowers people, those things, it may just feel like a burden. And families have said to me that it becomes another task to keep all the flowers alive in the house. It also can really fill the home physically in a way that's quite overwhelming. So I think, you know, being sensitive, like we were saying, and stopping and feeling that we want to make gestures that are really helpful and useful. And the other thing that can come up is it can bring a sadness. I'd never thought about it before, but some families say that having living things that die in their homes is painful. So giving things that are more life-promoting and more supportive of the people. And environmentally, some families are really troubled by the amount of flowers and the amount of waste that's involved in giving shop bought flowers. So, you know, but a little little bunch of hand picked flowers from the garden can be a beautiful, gentle gesture, a really meaningful gesture if that's what you wish to give. And if you wish to give flowers, if you think it's appropriate, there's nothing wrong with waiting a few weeks before sending them because some people, from a practical point of view, they don't have enough vases. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really good. And I did in my community beautiful circle of women organise flowers to be delivered every week to a bereaved mother. And it was an amazing beautiful gesture. So those flowers can come later or they can come on special days or just randomly when you're thinking of the person. But having a whole house of flowers in one go in the first week or two isn't always helpful. And so when you learn that news, you don't have to look up a florist straight away, just hold back a little bit. Yeah, and maybe, you know, if you want to order something or send something, you send a box of chocolates or you send a little food delivery because you know food will be consumed or, you know, a bottle of wine or there's other gestures that can be made that are really beautiful that, you know, you can send because it's such a such an important human response to want to make it a meaningful gesture. And I think it's important to stop and not slip in into the traditional giving of flowers if it's not something that is going to be helpful for that family. And people often say to me in my job, oh, you know, I don't know how you do it. I don't know what to say. And I think just acknowledging that none of us no matter how experienced or inexperienced we are in this space, that none of us know what to say, but by avoiding someone because we're afraid or we don't know what to say is not a reason to ignore someone. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I think sometimes, and I I know in the past when I was much younger, there can be a sense of getting it wrong, worrying that you'll get it wrong being frightened that you'll be clumsy or awkward or being so overwhelmed with your fear of the other person's sadness that you don't show up. And I know that that can feel extremely painful for the grieving person or the family. And um, with the word sorry, it seems insufficient 
you know, it just doesn't feel like it expresses exactly how we feel. But I think the important thing as well is remembering that compassion isn't about giving the solutions or the answers. It's about giving all the love that we have to give. And we may not know what to say, but we certainly know how to love and how you can show love to someone who has lost a loved one. Particularly, have you got any ideas of how you could show love to someone, particularly in those early days in their grief? Well, I think being present, showing up physically, if that feels appropriate for the person that's grieving or the family, for some people that it will be too much for people to show up physically. And so it might be extending yourself with little messages. It might be phone calls if they feel appropriate. I think often if you are the the sense of physical touch and physical holding and a sense of sitting close and offering companionship, whether it's in personal or emotionally, in some way, I think that's what the most important thing is coming alongside the global, that personal family and just offering them your comfort, letting them know you're there to lean into if they need that. And you know, just being reliable and consistent in your support is an amazing gift. And how soon, Melinda, would you suggest is too soon to contact someone after learning the news? Such a hard and interesting question to answer because I think it's so unique to each situation. But I think it's better to act than not act. I think the hesitation or the holding back, particularly at such a difficult time, can we can always have a go and be told it's too soon or the person's not ready for contact. But I think there's nothing to be lost at letting someone know how sorry you are that the person has died and reaching out and perhaps choosing ways to make contact that is least intrusive as possible. So sending a text message versus calling initially or sending a text message to ask, can I call you? Is that feeling like something that would be helpful? If you're a family member, if you're a very close person, absolutely turning up on the doorstep. If you know that's your place is a really important thing. It might be that we just go to the home and leave a little gift of love or a little gesture like a note or some flowers. In my community, it could be that you leave a little plate of homemade cookies or something to just nourish the family in their grief in the home, even if you're not entering the home. I think all those things are really useful, just gestures that are reaching in and offering comfort and support in the terrible deep sadness and loss that they're feeling. And just one of the things that I often reflect on, just with the idea of sending a note, I think we've really lost the art of letter writing or writing a card will often send a text but often people who are in the depths of grief find their phone just so overwhelming because the number of text messages coming through and they just can't process it or they feel like they need to respond but a note is always a nice gesture as well just simply thinking of you. I think so and something I think 
that often bereaved people feel, particularly if a loss has been sudden or unexpected, is that people are frightened to come towards them. So the physical gesture of going to the home and putting something in the mailbox or going to the home and putting something on the doorstep or sleeping it under the front door, the effort that's made to leave a physical note means a lot. I know that that means a lot, that extra effort. Often in some ways, as you said, there can be an overwhelm with electronic communication. I think also we're so used to communicating in those ways that I can feel empty and sometimes not as authentic as real life gestures. So I even feel often I've noticed that bereaved people will choose to use voice memos and it's an interesting thing I've noticed that they'll leave voice messages and be asking for that more real-life contact of hearing your voice but sending it in a way that they can choose to listen to it when they're ready. Sometimes all the electronic communication can become a blur and it will overwhelm. Sometimes when we're so broken, just the effort of reading is too much for us. And also the gesture of writing a card or a letter, you know, it's that extra step that you've gone. It's not just a case of, yeah, as you say, but it can be a bit empty, you know, sending a text, but you've gone and found some paper or card and shows real care as well. The other thing, you know, leaving something on the doorstep, our default is food often. And we've probably both seen it where a family may get 10 lasagnas and by the end of it all, they may not even want to look at lasagna. And I think maybe I am asking them, do they need food, first of all, because they may ha- already have a, a large supply and we don't have to be quite so reactive with food in those early days because we need to be fed for a very long time. Absolutely. And I think that is about being sensitive And as a community, if a community is working together in a united way to care for a bereaved person or family, it's often really helpful to identify who that person will be that will be the thread between the family and the community and really getting clear, you know, is it food that's needed or do we really need funds, do we really need money or do we just need kindness and little notes and cards and files Something else that a bereaved um, friend of mine said was that often if there's food sensitivities in the home, sometimes the food's not appropriate for the people in the home and that can compound a bit of overwhelm because then they're worried about having to throw the food out or not being able to accept it in a way that it it was intended. So I think slowing down, just as we would when someone dies, that reminder to stop and take a breath or really be present. I think that applies so beautifully to how we respond to grieving people and just stopping and getting clear so that our efforts are landing really well with the grieving family, but also like we feel like we're really offering things that are going to be useful and help them go forward. Yeah, a friend of mine, she told me that she once brought toilet roll and tissues because obviously the foot traffic through someone's house is going to be a lot greater and therefore the bathroom is going to be used. And 
and naturally there was going to be some crying so tissues are needed and and the reality is you know for someone who is grieving who wants to go to the supermarket and stand in the toilet roll aisle like that's just absolutely so th- little things there are alternatives and and that might be even groceries you know buy essentials like that so I think so and I think being sensitive to those little things making sure that the gestures of help include very practical things like that. I know, you know, when there's little babies in the home, someone taking the job or a few people taking the job of cooking baby food that's specific for little ones if, if there's a bereaved mother, they're just not often capable of keeping that cycle of special food for those little people in the home going. So it can be an amazing network of you know, the people that buy the toilet paper and the people that do the baby food and the person that mows the lawn. I mean, there's lots of apps nowadays that can help coordinate that, like take them a meal and gather my crew or just two of the ones that I know. But also I think, you know, finding, as you said, someone who's that primary person or a leader who might be able to help try and lead that in some way can be helpful. And other practical things like Many families have dogs and the dog needs walked. And often we think, oh, let me know, or often we'll say, let me know what I can do. But, you know, given something concrete, like saying, I'll be there at five o'clock to walk your dog. And then they can come back and say, oh, you know, she's already been walked or they can let you know that they don't need it. Absolutely. And little children that still need someone to take them to the park. We put them on the swing, baskets of washing that can be just left at the back door with no need for the family to interact and someone can pick it up, take it, wash it, dry it and bring it back folded. It's very incredible beeps. And the other thing that I think is important, Melinda, you know, if you know someone who is in that inner sanctum of a family's life, helping to coordinate all of that, that they need support too. That the support people need support. Absolutely. I think that's a really important, a really, really important part of caring and giving and also to create more sustainable ways within a community to keep showing up because they know that people will continue to die within that community and that we all need, we'll all need at times to receive and we can all take roles when it's time to give. But we need to feel that we all, many hands make light work and definitely there's an opportunity there for those that are at the centre giving the most to perhaps also have meals delivered to their home or their families that, you know, are in need are being cared for alongside their children to the bereaved family. So the potential for that is endless, but it's a really important part of being able to continue to give in this space. And so, Melinda, is there anything that's specific to a really traumatic death? If it's very shocking or sudden, often we panic a little bit because we're all so overwhelmed by that. But have you any advice if there's a very traumatic death happens in your community? Well. I always lean back to what I've been told and what the amazing, beautiful people that I've walked alongside have shared with me. And 
what I've heard is that in many ways they feel extremely vulnerable, sometimes almost like a little baby themselves and even sensory experiences such as how people enter the home, how they move around in the home, their nervous systems are so shattered by what has happened that we need to bring such gentleness in the way that we move with one. So being quiet, being mindful of how we move around and talk in the home to support them to feel that they are being cared for with a lot of mindfulness. I think being really conscious of time limits and not overstaying. I think often there's a sense within it when you're very traumatised, it's very difficult to set your own boundaries with other people. So reminding each other as a community that we don't overstay and that our job is not to take more from the family than they are able to offer. So just being there, giving what we're there to give, even if that's just to sit and listen and then knowing, being sensitive to the importance of quiet and rest in between visitors. And also within ourselves, preparing for those big emotional spaces, the intensity of what can come out of very traumatised grieving people and not feeling that we have to you know, deny our own emotional response, but just being aware that it is a, it's a big space to be in and that often will come up against emotional responses from grieving people that are larger than experiences we might have had before and finding ways within ourselves to be present to that. Well, obviously, it's okay to cry with the grieving family, but being mindful to not allow our grief to take over the space or to overwhelm the grieving person because they just have very little in their tank. They don't have a lot of extra to give. They really just need us to be holding and giving, reaching into them. And um, what would you say, Melinda, would be some of the things not to do? Well, I really like the ring theory. You can find that on the internet. It's quite a well-discussed concept now and the principle being that the people at the centre are the very most important people and that the rule around care in that space is that the grieving people can dump out. So they can pass out whatever pain, discomfort or angst and sometimes even anger and frustration, they can send that out of the circle. So the circle around them they're very closest family and friends and then out from there is the community that holds them and then the wider community like concentric circles and the grieving family the rule is they can dump out anything that they need but the rule that of what flows back in is only love and kindness and so I think that's a really beautiful principle for a community to hold and remember that we especially remember that if there is sadness or unrest going on for the carers, that the family at the centre of the grieving people don't receive any of that, that we as a community give each other space to talk or cry or move through difficult things and that we only, we keep a focus on only 
helping to fill the tanks and nourish the family at the centre. I think another thing that's quite important to happen is acknowledging that a family may want to talk about their loved one or to tell their story, but that we don't have to try and change the subject. You know, we don't have to try and fix anything. Yeah, that it's just about being present there and listening and remembering that grief is being sad for them is is okay, that that's actually a really important part of it. Yeah, it can feel really big and complex, but actually it's a very simple space. It's really just about showing up and responding to what's happening. And Melinda, in your experience, would you say that the way men and women grieve is different? And do you have to alter the way that you give love and support? It's an interesting one because I think often that's where conflict and grief can occur in families and communities when people judge each other's different grieving styles. And there's some really beautiful research and work that's being done into grieving styles. Traditionally, it was considered that men and women grieve differently. And as that's progressed, there's more of an understanding now that there's different grieving styles regardless of gender. And so often, traditionally, there would be seen that men would be more in what's called the instrumental griever. So it's more the doing response to grief. But absolutely, I've seen women and children be in that space as well, that their response to the sadness and the loss is to become more productive and to feel that their way of moving through is to stay busy and to be task orientated. And then there's the other griever, the type of grief, which is often known as an intuitive griever. And those people will actually slow down and often be deeply in their emotional response to grief and be in the deep feeling space and needing to be very demonstrative in their grief or there's more crying or more needing other people to be present to the deep feelings. And often the thinking space and the doing space is really overwhelming for them. And in the opposite way, the instrumental grief or the doing often feels the feeling space is something that's difficult for them. And I think the most important thing as a community and caring for grieving people is just showing up and and just this long to carefully to evidence that's needed for each person in the in the equation and trying to match our help with what it is that they need. So the instrumental person would love you to come in and help with tasks or mow the lawn or do the washing or and the intuitive grief or the deep feeling person just wants you to sit with them while they cry and they talk about the person that's died. And sometimes it's just sitting side by side and if both of you are staring at the wall, that's okay too. Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important things I've learned is that a silent space is so valuable. We often just need to just be present and to be there and there's so much that's received and just being silent. And I think grieving people really crave and often express that they want more silence and stillness. And Melinda, I suppose like 
one of the most difficult things about grief is that you haven't just simply lost a person at one point in time. You've lost that person in every aspect of your life. And life has now been changed and grief doesn't go away and nor does the need for support. But often we've got this idea that once the funeral happens, that things start resuming to normality. And that's not the case, as we know. So how can you continue to support someone after the funeral? Well, in many ways, and I think nearly all the time, every time, families will sometimes say that the grieving actually becomes more difficult once the funeral's happened. There's such a lot of tasks and busyness that is needed in organising the funeral and can be so task-orientated that the deep feelings, the deep sadness comes once it all slows down. And so I think the most important thing looking at caring for people in grief is remembering, is remembering to show up and remembering to maintain consistent amount of support. So absolutely keeping those meals going. If meals are something that the family really wanted, making sure that the things that were helpful, that they've let you know were helpful, are continued. Definitely continue to speak the person's name that's died. I think in every situation, that is the, one of the biggest fears that people have is the person will be forgotten and then everybody will go back to their lives and forget that that person was here and how special they were. Anniversaries, birthdays, Christmas, Easter, all the really significant events that we celebrate in our socially and culturally are really painful thresholds for grieving people. So often people are unsure should they write that person's name on the birthday card or the Christmas card. And I've never heard a grieving person say, I don't want people to do that. So I think remembering them and acknowledging them in really tangible ways is so important and continuing to reach out at important times. So doing what feels right for the family, but for me, I've got little alarms in my calendar in my phone for significant days for families, bereaved families that have been close to me in my life. And I'll just send a little message or sometimes make a phone call on that day just to let them know I'm remembering. I'm remembering the significance of this day and I'm sending you love. I might light a candle, send a photo of the candle. But I think the rem- helping the family remember it and feeling that you're there is a really important part. And then ongoingly, other things that can be really helpful is having little memorial ceremonies, being present for those other significant events if ashes are being scattered or there's an anniversary of death. Being someone that says, I will come and I'll sit with you or I'll be part of that the next important ceremony to remember them I love the quote from Cheryl Strad. She wrote the book, Tiny Beautiful Things. And she said, when supporting someone grieving, make a place for that person who has died in your life. And I, I think that's a beautiful description. And, you know, we really, it is made easier for us if we go to a funeral. Often we get the little booklet or the order of service and it will have someone's date of birth and their date of death on the front of it. 
just take it home and put those dates in your diary or like you do set an alarm on your phone like it's not that hard to remember those things or to make an effort to try and remember them and if you forget it's okay to do it the next time because I think we can get so caught up in getting things right and you know we think oh no I've forgotten or I didn't quite get that moment and but I know for a brief family, any time that you remember that you reach to them is a really important part of feeling that they're being cared for and the person is loved. And it could be just sharing a funny story. You know, sometimes if someone comes into my mind, I might send their loved one a message and say, oh, I was just remembering when he done this um, and it made me smile. It's just those little stories that continue to bring that person into the present moment as well absolutely i think those are the most healing gestures when people are grieving that you remember the the joyful parts the happy moments if you have photos of that person just sending those happy memories or as you said sharing a little story of joy is such a gift And if someone is buried, you know, going to visit them and letting their loved ones know that you've gone to visit them and that can be really lovely as well. And the other thing is, you know, you don't have to have an excuse. It doesn't have to be a birthday or Christmas. It could be just any random day and just sending a text saying, I was today, you know, rather than saying, how are you? Uh, I was today. And, And that can be really supportive as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. I think, how are you? So many bereaved families say that they that question is one of the most difficult questions they've asked because they don't know how to answer it and they also feel that the other person perhaps isn't prepared for the answer that might come because it's a difficult answer and it's a long road of sadness. And so I think that's very it's sensitive just to ask how is today, what's happening for you, what's happening to you. And being prepared that, yeah, the answer may not necessarily be what we think it is and that we might have to step up if that's the case. Definitely. And um, the other thing that, Melinda, we've both probably come across in our experience is all those other losses, um, the secondary losses, and one of them can be the loss of friendship. And we all know that death and grief is very hard, but it can change and sometimes end lifelong friendships. And that injustice can make it grief more difficult as well. So I think that we have to put ourselves out there and acknowledge that someone, you know, if they're experiencing grief, that grief brain is a real thing that it's easy for them to forget your birthday and it's easy for them to forget lots of things but I think for us we have to learn to forgive easily as well. Yeah I thought that's a really important reminder is that often they can be shame or guilt for the grieving people that they are the people they were before and there's a fear that because we don't understand grief so well in our society that people won't understand that their brains and their memories aren't working the way that they might have once. And also there's a fear that if they say no to an invitation, if they've been invited out and they say no, that they won't get invited again. 
So I think remembering to continue to ask, to continue to include them and to yeah, absolutely being very forgiving and very kind in supporting them in the England. Absolutely. And do you think that, you know, if there's anything that if you're supporting someone who is grieving, that the families wish more people knew, like, is it the fact that grief is a long time thing, that it just doesn't disappear when, once you go back to work? Or is there anything specific that you think might be worth remembering? Yeah, I think it's really important that everybody from the onset knows it's forever, that we that the sadness will be that, that person or the family forever. And just remembering that even though externally they might return to work and might be out in the community and seem to return to normality, that what they're carrying on the inside is still there and the heartbreak and the sadness of the year. And often bereaved people, I hear it a lot, um, are frightened of being seen laughing or smiling in public after a loss because they feel that it's a betrayal to the person that's died or it's a sign that their sadness isn't still very large or very deeply felt. So I think as a community bringing sensitivity to knowing that grief is a very long road and you know that we learn to carry it more comfortably, it never goes away. I often reflect on, and we hear this a lot in different spaces around supporting people that are in death and dying that, you know, in some ways because we don't have so much cultural practice around grieving here in the West and in our communities that the grieving people can feel invisible. And I know when I was a little girl growing up in the community that I did, it was very multicultural and the women that were grieving would wear black for a very long extended period of time and there was a set time where they would take one of those black garments off and then eventually over the years it would just be a, a black scarf or something smaller but the visual signal to the community was I'm grieving, I'm still grieving and I remember it being a long process over several years and it was so helpful to, I think, without the grieving person needing to express that I'm still very sad. This is still part of my being. And I think in some ways, because we don't have those cultural practices so relevant now, it's easy to forget. And one of the other things that come to mind for me as well, Melinda, is we'll often say to people, and a good friend of mine told me that, you know, people would often say, oh, you're so strong. And every time that she heard that, she wanted to scream because it seemed like a default that people said to her. And, you know, there was for her that any strength that she had was born out of necessity. And I think being mindful of the language that we use and, you know, don't use language that the family aren't using, um, like if they aren't using the word battle, um, often we we default to words like that or even platitudes as well. I think so. And one of the one of the things I've learned particularly from some bereaved parents is this real resistance to the word brave. And that really surprised me because I I can feel what 
You know, I can only imagine, but I have a sense of feeling just what I would need to rally within myself to meet every day if I lost one of my children. And yet that I found collectively often is a real trigger in families because they don't feel brave. They feel a sense of I have no choice. I have to get up every day. I have to keep going, but it's not an act of bravery. So I think being open, even when it doesn't make sense to us initially, being open and listening to how important, as you said, language is to grieving people. And I guess a bit like when we visit a different country, just slowing down and being sensitive to merging or wanting, having a willingness to learn the ways of this place. And I think that's a really, really significant way to be with grieving people is to listen carefully to how they speak about their experience and coming in alongside them, I think mirroring their language and mirroring what they are needing is such a message that we care and that we're trying to understand what they're going through. And um, the other thing I think is nice to remember, and I was just reminded of this recently, that sometimes grief is the only way that people feel connected to their person. And I, I bring this up because a beautiful friend of mine recently watched the funeral again of her beautiful granddaughter. And she said, I don't know why I done that because it was very upsetting, but that was the way that she could feel connected. And, you know, to the outside world, you'd think, oh, why would you put yourself through that again? But, you know, we have to be mindful that this is a connection for them. Absolutely. And I think that's a really common one, you know, that bereaved families will spend extended periods of time looking through their photos, listening to music that makes them feel really sad. But I think we can really instead of feeling alarmed about them wanting, really wanting to occupy that space and feeling worried that that they won't return from that, particularly as time goes on, is that sense or can be that cultural and social desire for us to all feel that they're moving forward. But it's so important and we really do know now more and more that it's essential for them to revisit their grief and the deep places in their grief and absolutely watching funeral footage is such an enormous experience but I think it is a really necessary part of sometimes also remembering things that we were we missed that perhaps we were in such deep emotional states that we want to go back I know there's often a sense of wanting to understand or even wanting to see how we were how, were, how was I in that space? How was uh, how, how were other people? Was it a beautiful experience? I want to go back and remember the beautiful experience that it was, even while it's really sad. So not bringing our thoughts of what's right and wrong, just following them and making sure that they feel that we're, we're trying to understand and that we're reflecting that they know what they need in their grief. Oh, Melinda, it's just been absolutely wonderful having a chat with you today. And to end, I'd like to share the quote from Herbert Humphrey. And he said, the greatest healing therapy is friendship and love. And I think that has really come through in this conversation today, that that is the most important thing, um, just to be there for someone, to show them friendship and to show them love. And 
that's all we have to do. Absolutely. I think it's just about kindness. So it's been wonderful. But the big question as well is, what have you been drinking this morning? Oh, well, I've got a lemon and ginger tea with honey from my beehives at home. Of course. Oh, homegrown honey. (laughs) Homegrown honey. The best. Oh, it's just been wonderful as always having a chat with you, Melinda. And thank you for sharing your experience and, and your wealth of knowledge. It's just been beautiful. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an honor.